Thank you. It's always great to be here. Uh, I have been uh, taking my bearings from questions 24 and 25 in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, in which the doctrine of the Trinity is sketched out, but uh, it doesn't say a great deal about uh, the idea of the Holy Trinity, and so I've been trying to fill in the picture a little bit, and especially question 25, since there is but one God, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Uh, the, the answer that the Heidelberg gives, which is fine as far as it goes, but you know it, it doesn't go very far. You, you might have a lot of questions after reading this answer. It, it says, uh, why? Uh, because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. <coughs> These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Well, yeah, that's good, but uh, more could be said here. Uh, and I've been trying to say uh, a little more. Uh, <clears throat> How many people were here uh, the first week that I spoke? Yeah, a couple. How many were here last week? Yeah, a few more. Uh, it, you know, I, I imagine what I want to present as building from one week to the next, but if I try to do that too much, those of you who weren't here in the first couple of weeks will be left behind. So I'll, I'll just run through very quickly what I said before and then try to move on to some new material today. I'll try to keep it uh, limited to just a couple of points in order to leave uh, time for questions. I never seem to leave enough time for questions and you know, uh, it, it seems to be uh, uh, interest in questions uh, arising uh, from the group and then uh, we, we don't have time to get to church on time so uh, I, I'll try to uh, limit myself. It, it, it's, I find it harder and harder uh, to be brief. Uh, I, may, I may have said uh, you know, Shakespeare wrote somewhere that the brevity is the soul of wit. And I, I find that as I get older, I become more and more witless because uh, <laughs> I, I, I become more and more long-winded. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll try to keep it uh, brief and, and leave time for questions because I, I may not get to the questions that some of you want to ask and I, I know that I've been deferring them. I may defer them a, a little more, but then uh, you can raise them from the floor. Well. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, why? And it talks about how God has revealed himself uh, in his word, and then just gives a little sketchy content about God as the Holy Trinity. So I tried to fill out in the first week an answer to the question, why? And I said there are basically four reasons why the church has a doctrine of the Trinity. So some of you will have heard me run through this twice before, but I, I'll, I'll do it quickly now for the sake of those who weren't here previously. The, there are four basic reasons, and I think all Christians could know this and be able to say this. I, I don't think this is too hard to get. Uh, I think you could teach it in the confirmation classes. I think teenagers could understand this. You know, the, the, the more uh, solid teaching and catechesis they get, before they go away to college, the better, because we keep having these experiences of young people growing up in the church and then going off to college and 
you know, the roots haven't sunk deep enough in many cases. So I, I, I think we have a real responsibility in the church to have uh, educated lay people and especially work on educating our young people as they're coming through the ranks. So this, this is a point that could be put into any catechism or any instruction uh, of people uh, who are not at an advanced level. I, I don't think it's too advanced. There are four basic reasons why we have a doctrine of the Trinity. First, as the Heidelberg Catechism suggests, it goes back to the biblical witness when we look at the different things that the Bible says and the New Testament says about God, we get language about the Father, language about the Son, language about the Holy Spirit. We don't get a doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament, but we get the elements of a doctrine of the Trinity. And so it, it took a long time. It took several centuries for the church actually to get to the point where uh, Definitive creedal statements could be made, as is in the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed that I also looked at with those who came before uh, uh, last week. But in any case, uh, Scripture is the first main reason, the biblical witness. But because some of you have an interest in the Holy Spirit, I, I should say that just as there's no doctrine as such of the Trinity in the New Testament, this is a way of pulling together a lot of different statements and trying to think how they hang together. So there's no single place in the New Testament that you can point to and say, aha, the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. That's a little easier to get than going on to affirm the Holy Spirit is God. And in fact, even some of the great early theologians uh, in the Christian church, uh, I'm thinking in particular of a theologian named Basil of Caesarea. Basil of Caesarea, uh, who's entirely Orthodox and, and highly venerated in the uh, uh, Greek Orthodox and, and Orthodox circles, uh, he wasn't sure whether the Holy Spirit was God or not. So, I mean, the basic question is, the spirit has to be either divine or a creature. So on what side of the line does the spirit fall? Uh, is, is the spirit at the top of the line but still on the creaturely side? Or is the spirit actually God? Well, there's no place you can point to in the New Testament that gives you a clear-cut answer. It, it, there's nothing that says the Holy Spirit is God, just like the Father and the Son. You know, it, it's more a matter of reflecting on the different things that are said about the Spirit and uh, drawing conclusions and making explicit what's implicit in Scripture. So the doctrine of the Trinity is making explicit what's implicit in the New Testament because there's no explicit doctrine. And th the same is true in a different way for the Holy Spirit. It's a matter of making explicit what seems to be implicit in uh, Scripture. But the other three reasons, which I've presented in general, would also apply to how they finally came to the affirmation that, yes, the Holy Spirit is just as fully God as the Father and the Son. So the other three reasons besides Scripture were revelation, salvation, and worship. So revelation, when we're thinking about the Son and the incarnate Son, when we're thinking about Jesus, means that Jesus doesn't just give us true teachings about God. 
he, he's not just another prophet. He's God in person in the flesh. He is what, what we call the self-revelation of God. Uh, so that when we have knowledge of Jesus, we don't just know about God, we have personal knowledge of God because he's God with us. So Jesus is the self-revelation of God. And if he, if he were not uh, fully divine, he couldn't be the self-revelation of God. So, but but that, that, that's a kind of reasoning process, you see. But, but what happens if we deny that he's truly God? Well, it has, comp- it has implications for the doctrine of revelation and the doctrine of the knowledge of God. If he's not truly God, uh, he's not the self-revelation of God, and, and therefore we wouldn't have a trinity. You know, lots of things would, would hang on it. So because uh, he's God with us, we know uh, God in, in a personal uh, incarnate way and not just having true ideas about God as, say, in monotheism. So monotheism had to be uh, modified, and I used the image which some people found helpful. Uh, at first, monotheism was like a, a pure beam of white light, but with the Trinity, it hits the prism and you get uh, a spectrum. Uh, and so we didn't know all those colors were inside the white light until it hit the spectrum. So hitting the spectrum is like Jesus becoming incarnate and being God with us in the flesh. So uh, the, the same pattern of reasoning uh, carries forward in talking about salvation. Uh, and this is more uh, uh, central, perhaps, uh, uh, more crucial. Uh, if Jesus is not God with us, he couldn't save us from sin and death. No mere human being can save us from sin and death. He, even if Je- Jesus were the most perfect human being, the most obedient uh, of all God's creatures, uh, that might mean something for him, that might give him a, a, a destiny of eternal life with God as a human being, but it wouldn't necessarily have... Uh, any benefits for the rest of us who are fallen creatures and trapped in our sins and can't get out of it uh, by our own power. I mean, we, we need that work of God in Christ to deliver us from sin and death. So uh, because he's God with us, he can be the savior of the world. And if he's not God with us, then it calls into question whether he is the savior of the world or not. So it's that same process of reasoning. What happens if he's not God incarnate to our understanding of salvation? Now, I'll, I'll say a little more this week about why people doubted that Jesus was uh, truly God, because they, they were deep reasons. So they weren't just skeptical reasons. Uh, but uh, the, the church resisted the, these you know, otherwise compelling reasons because the doctrine of salvation was at stake. And if you look at the Nicene Creed, uh, there's a phrase in there, for us human beings and our salvation. And so the Nicene Creed is the creed that establishes that Jesus is the same sort of reality as God. He's of one being with the Father. If you remember reciting the Nicene Creed, that's in there. I mean, that, that was the whole point of one being with the Father. Is the Son the same sort of being as the Father? Is the son on the divine side of the line, or is the son merely the highest of all creatures? So if he's merely the highest of all creatures, he can't have become, uh, have come down to earth for us and our salvation. 
I mean, he has to be God incarnate in order to deliver us from sin and death. Only God can deliver us from sin and death. In fact, only God incarnate. He has to be truly God and truly human. If you keep reading through the Heidelberg Catechism, you'll find this point made. You know, it, it, it makes these points a little more clearly than it says something about the doctrine uh, of the Trinity. And finally, uh, the fourth point is worship. So scripture, revelation, salvation, and worship. And the early church from the very beginning was already involved in worshiping Jesus as Lord. I mean, we have the statement, Jesus is Lord. And that's the earliest Christian confession when Christians gathered together on the first day of the week for worship, uh, that was something that they always said, the way we might say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. You know, all of our other creeds kind of develop out of this one basic creedal statement that Jesus is Lord, or as we read in the hymn in chapter 2 of Philippians, at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that goes back to early Christian worship, the earliest Christian worship. He could not properly be the object of worship if he's not truly God. So this, this is an objection that you will find uh, if you get into conversations uh, among your Jewish friends or, or your uh, Muslim friends. You know, how, how, can, uh, how can you worship a mere human being you know, how can you make these strange statements about God as three in one? You know, isn't a simple monotheism better? Well, well, they want that pure beam of light, but they don't take into account that Jesus is the prism who gives us the Holy Trinity because of revelation, salvation, and worship. So if he's merely a human being, he, he shouldn't be worshipped. You know, and when... when uh, people try to worship Paul and Silas and so on, they say, no, 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 we're, we're just human beings. You know, we don't deserve the word. And it, it is an astonishing fact that we should never forget that the earliest Christians, of course, started out as Jews. And the last thing any Jew would ever do is worship something which is not God as if it were God, and especially worshiping a creature or a human being as if that creature were God. So, so those objections are entirely reasonable and correct unless they're wrong. You know, unless in this case we have an exception. If Jesus truly is God with us in the flesh, he's properly the object of worship and we can say Jesus is Lord. That, that's really saying Jesus is identical with Yahweh, with the Lord God of the Old Testament. You know, Jesus, Lord, in that statement is a, is a way of, of pointing to Yahweh. When, when the uh, Jews would read Yahweh in the text, it was such a holy word, they wouldn't say it. They wouldn't let it pass through their lips. So they'd read Yahweh with their eyes, but they would say Adonai, they'd say Lord out loud with their lips. So to say that Jesus is Lord is to give him this exalted divine status. He, he's not a lesser God, He's not the highest of all creatures. He's God in person, in the flesh, God, God with us. So for those four reasons, the biblical witness, revelation, salvation, and worship, uh, we, we had to modify our monotheism in a Trinitarian 
direction, despite all the problems that that left us to figure out. Now, for those of you who are so interested in the Holy Spirit, as I know some of you are, basically the same pattern of reasoning is what the church went through. I mean, I'm simplifying things, and you won't find it. I mean, they didn't sit down and deduce it in the way that I'm giving it to you. But looking back, we can say they thought that Scripture was presenting spirit as something that was not just a creaturely reality, but was divine, that the spirit played an important role in revealing God to us, that we could not know who God is and what God is apart from the operation of the spirit. So Jesus as the self-revelation of God and the spirit as opening our hearts and minds to receive that revelation, the spirit has an essential role in the event of revelation. So that's, that's a sign that the spirit is not just a creature, but comes from God for the sake of revelation. And the Holy Spirit uh, brings about forgiveness of sins and brings about uh, uh, our acceptance of Christ and the gospel you know, that we would not be able to do on our own apart from that movement of the spirit in our lives. So the spirit plays an essential role in the work of salvation. The Spirit makes Christ and salvation available to us in the present uh, so that we can embrace it. You know, the, the, the way this is best spoken of is that we're moved by the Spirit to uh, have our eyes be opened and our hearts be opened so that we can receive Christ and the gospel, so that we can acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. We, we would not be able to say that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. You remember, no one can say that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit has that role in uh, uh, bringing about salvation to each person in particular and to the church in general and perhaps in some sense more cosmically beyond that once we start looking at Ephesians and uh, Colossians and, and so on. There's that cosmic scope that enters in. But the spirit has that, that same operation. It has, a, has a, a role in the divine operation of revelation and of uh, salvation, you know, bringing the salvation of Christ home to us in the present. And then finally, as it says, uh, finally in, in the uh, uh, second and, and complete version of the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, uh, the spirit is worshiped and glorified along with the Father and the Son. So that the spirit was again already regarded as a proper object of worship and the spirit could not be properly the object of worship uh, if the spirit were not truly God. So the spirit is not a lesser God and the spirit is not the highest of, of creatures. The spirit is God just as the father is God and just as the son is God. So that, that in a nutshell is why we have a, a doctrine of the Holy Spirit and with regard to the spirit in particular, which I've been getting questions from the floor in the last couple of weeks uh, about, so I, I wanted to elaborate that uh, a little more fully. But you won't be able to say, well, show me a, a verse in the New Testament that says the Holy Spirit is God. Well, you, you have to look at what the Holy Spirit is doing, you know, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, there, yeah. 
Yes, yes. Uh, and you know, that anticipates the Christian idea of the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit is not just an aspect of God's relationship to the world. So, so th this gets subtle. So, I mean, if you have the one God, if you have the Lord God, Yahweh, and the Lord God relates to Israel and to David and, and so on through his spirit, it's a way that God is present to us. But is, is the Holy Spirit really distinct, once we get into the New Testament, from the Son and the Father? Uh, or is, or is this, see, there, there are proposals, I, I don't think they're correct, I don't think they're finally orthodox, which wants to make the Spirit sort of, well, just one way God has of working in the world. See, what, what the Christian doctrine of the Trinity finally came to affirm, and th th this will take me to the new material I, I'd like to, to uh, cover a little bit. You know, running out of time very quickly here. Uh, if God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relation to us, and so the, this is what the Heidelberg Catechism looks at, because it looks at the Apostles' Creed, you know, it connects God as Father with creation, and God as Son with salvation, and God as the Holy Spirit with sanctification and redemption and so on. Th those are all ways in which God is present and at work uh, in our lives and in our communities. So is the Trinity simply a matter of how God relates to us in the world? So if that were true, you wouldn't necessarily need a doctrine of the Trinity. You could have the one God in eternity, and you could have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in time, and those would be like three masks or three personae, you know, persons in that sense, uh, that God wears uh, in relation to the world. But God's being in eternity would just be the one God. And see, that's, that's what's called modalism in the technical doctrine that these are three modes. These are three ways that God has of relating to the world. But God in eternity is not, does not have a triune identity, does not have a triune structure or constitution. Uh, so th that, that, uh, that tends to uh, undermine the idea that the Son and the Spirit are fully God. Yeah, it is. That's right. And see, I mean, I think when we, when we look back on these matters from the standpoint of Christian revelation, we can see those as anticipating uh, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. But, you know, Jews don't read Elohim in a triune way. You know, I mean, they, they, they have a different way of accounting for that language. It, it, it's a little ambiguous taken by itself. It, you, you wouldn't have a doctrine of the Trinity uh, until Jesus comes as God incarnate. So then we can look back and see these plurals as uh, implicitly pointing forward you know, and unwittingly pointing forward to, to the triune God. But you would never deduce the Holy Trinity from anything that you find in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. So, uh, you know, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That, that could be the presence of the, the one undifferentiated monotheistic God, which is what the Jews had and have.
Yeah. Yeah. Did he have a human form, and is that what we were creating? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't know if that's the, if you don't have to answer that. Okay. Well, yeah. Did everybody hear the question? Yeah. This this background noise. Uh, say say your question again a little louder. Yeah. There, there's a relatively simple answer that I'll start with, and then there's a more complicated answer. Uh, the, the reason that it gets really complicated and strange is related to a point I hope I can get to today before we go. Uh, and that is that eternity is beyond time. And therefore, Time and space do not belong to the being of God. Time and space belong to the creation that God made. So God created time and space. And that's the agony and the ecstasy of theological language and trying to think about God because all we have are categories drawn from time and space while always knowing that they don't literally apply to God because God is beyond time and space. So how do we talk about a transcendent God who's beyond time and space if time and space don't belong to God's being? So uh, here's where Calvin proposed that uh, we need to think about God's accommodation to us. God uses elements of creaturely reality and creaturely existence to reveal himself to us even though they're not literally true. They're true by way of an analogy, but we don't know how they're true. And, and that's, that's a, a deep point about the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the Holy Trinity. We can affirm that God is the Holy Trinity, but we don't know how God is the Holy Trinity because the how questions are beyond our comprehension. But you know, what about what, what was the status of Jesus uh, when God was the Holy Trinity, uh, it's all eternity, and let's say before, you know, putting that in quotes to something, before the world was made. See, all these questions that we naturally put in temporal terms have to kind of be flipped over into logical and uh, what are called ontological relations. Uh, so the, the temporal uh, idiom is unavoidable, but when we think about it, we know it can't quite be merely temporal. But uh, in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 4, it says, we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. See, all that before the foundation of the world language runs throughout the, the New Testament in various places. Uh, in the prologue to the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. So th th this begins to be a remark about the eternal God. But what does beginning mean here? You know, what beginning, does God have a beginning? Say, I don't think so. You know, the, the, the eternal God does not literally have a beginning. I mean, God just is eternally. And I think the doctrine of the Trinity affirms God just is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Father is not only God, the Father is eternal. The Son is not just uh, the Son. The Son is eternal. The Spirit is eternal. So the eternal trinity is uh, composed of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
It, let me jump to the great conclusion and then come back to this. There's more to be said on, on this very difficult question of how time and eternity are related. But the Holy Trinity is not just a puzzle or a problem about which we knit our brows and scratch our heads and, and try to figure out how it, it works. You know, it's a deep mystery. And it cannot be explained away. It ought not to be explained away. But what's it a mystery of? I would say, finally, and this is why the Holy Spirit is important to include in there, finally, the Holy Trinity means that God's own being to all eternity is a being in communion. So the, the category that we need to understand the Holy Trinity is the category of communion. God does not need the world in order to be God. God does not need the world in order to have an object to love. God does love the world, but the God, love God shows toward the world is already grounded eternally in God's own being as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, the eternal trinity is a being in communion. If we had more time, I would read from John chapter 17 uh, with you. As some of you know that passage. But, you know, all through the Gospel of John, uh, a remarkable amount of work is done with the preposition in. And in is one way of getting at fellowship and communion so that it, it's not even just any fellowship. It's a very intimate kind of mutual indwelling. So the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, the communion of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. God just is a communion of love and freedom, of joy and peace to all eternity. That's just who and what God is all the way down. There, there's never anything more ultimate in God than the Holy Trinity as this communion of love and freedom. So it's a mysterious communion, but... The whole point of God's creating the world and then deciding not to abandon us to sin and death once we turned against God and fell into sin is that we might be delivered from uh, our plight and brought into eternal life in communion with God. So communion is the purpose. Communion is, is the final goal of all things. The world uh, is created for the sake of of love and freedom for the sake of communion with God. It turns away from God, it turns against God, it falls into sin, becomes incapable of communion with God, and then God restores us so that we can finally live not just an eternal life, which is right, but eternal life in communion with God. We're given a share as creatures without ceasing to be creatures. We are finally given a share in, in Christ, in the love and freedom and communion that God is and enjoys to all eternity. So communion on the basis of Trinitarian thinking is ultimate reality. See, there's nothing more basic than that. You know, there's a whole line of, of uh, theological thinking, which I won't go into in any, any detail, but uh, it goes all through the Middle Ages and so on, where it was said that God is being itself. You know, and that, that's a very abstract and difficult idea. God is being itself. But see, that's not quite Trinitarian. God is not just being itself. God is being in communion. God, God has no other reality 
than this reality of mutual indwelling and communion of the Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. That's who God is eternally in and of himself. And that's who God then reveals himself to be within time and space for us through the incarnation and through the operation of the Holy Spirit. So uh, the, the fellowship that we enjoy with one another on earth, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts and Christian love. What is that tie that binds? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. And what does that tie bind us to? It binds us to Jesus Christ, who not only brings God to us, but brings us to God, brings us upwards, as it were, into union and communion with God uh, in, in that fellowship. So we're given a share in, in the fellowship of love and freedom, joy and peace that God enjoys in his own unique way to all eternity. That's why I think the Holy Trinity is not just the most difficult of all Christian doctrines, but really the most beautiful, because it has to do with the mystery of communion. You know, the Holy Trinity is not just a mystery, but it's the mystery of communion. And it's the mystery that God is already Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally a being in communion. And then God shares himself not just ideas about himself. He shares himself in love and freedom, in joy and peace with us. And now, not just in spite of our limitations, not just in spite of our finitude, but in spite of our sins, in spite of our having turned against God. I think I did talk about this some years back, that the preposition that goes with sin is against. You know, we sin against God, against thee and thee only have I sinned. You know, or in Psalm 51, you know, you know, it's, it's against, it's, it's, it's hostility and, and rebellion uh, against God that God overcomes in Jesus Christ by bringing grace to lost sinners and to uh, the godless, uh, to those who are otherwise not capable of entering into love and freedom. Uh, with God. So the, the, the three basic elements of, of a technical doctrine of the Trinity, yeah, I'll run through this really quickly uh, and then throw the floor open for questions. We know them in Latin, but, but I prefer the Greek terms, the Greek counterparts. You, know, you might hear the, the term, might be familiar with, they have three persons in one substance. That's the way the Trinity is described. So substance, it comes from Latin, substantia, person comes from Latin persona. The problem with thinking about three persons is it's very hard not to think of them as three separate beings. And so that, then we fall into tritheism and we lose the oneness of God. And see, that this is what Muslims and Jews worry about in Christians. They, they think we're worshiping three gods. But the technical doctrine of the Trinity says, no, God's substance, or, or in uh, the, the Greek, the word is ousia, uh, and when you say the Nicene Creed of one substance or one being with the Father, the, the Greek word under there uh, in the Greek version of it is ousia, O-U-S-I-A, transliterated. So the, the Father and the Son are homo ousia. They have the same substance, which means they're not creatures. They, Jesus has the same substance as us as a human being, but as the eternal Son, he is of the same substance 
with the Father. So the, we can make a distinction between the eternal Son and Jesus. God is not by nature the incarnate Son, but God by nature is the eternal Son who becomes flesh. So the eternal Word becomes flesh. But you know, the eternal Son, the eternal Word, is logically prior to the incarnation and the basis for the incarnation because God doesn't have to become incarnate. God doesn't have to save us from our sins. God doesn't have to create the world, but God does it out of love and freedom and grace to share himself, to share uh, the, the glories and beauty of his own being with the creature. And he does that through the incarnation, through the incarnation of Christ. So, so we have this idea of substance, or I think better usia, and then instead of person, I, I think it's a more technical term, it's more difficult, but there's a Greek word, hypostasis, uh, do I have time? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I, I have this written out, and I'm not going to go into it in any uh, depth, but you can read more about this. Yeah, please. Usia, uh, hypostasis, but the, the third Greek term, which, which you'll see on the sheet, uh, you know, if I had more time, I'd write them out and explain them more fully, but I, I, I like to use the Greek terms, and, and the third term, which is not always brought in, and that you don't get in this formula one, one God in three persons. There's a third term. There's usia. There's hypostasis, which is concrete mode of personal being. So they're not, they're not separate. The Heidelberg Catechism is careful. It says three distinct persons. They're distinct, but they're not separate. It's a subtle distinction. But if they were separate, we'd have tritheism on our hands. And we know it can't be tritheism. So the one being of God cannot be divided into parts. You know, only creaturely realities can be divided into parts, but, but the eternal God is not a creature. He's on the other side, so to speak. So quantitative modes of thought do not work when we're thinking about God. The Trinity is not like a, a pie divided into uh, three sections, and you add it up and you get the one God. No, the one God exists in three concrete modes of being mysteriously at the same time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and as a being in communion, the, the way that the idea of communion comes through at this technical level of vocabulary is with the Greek term perichoresis, which, which is a really neat term. It, it, it has a dynamic aspect to it. Uh, I, I wish that the core in perichoresis was related to our word for dance, like choreography and so on, but it isn't. But even though it isn't, the Trinity is the dance of God. The Trinity is, is the eternal movement in which God lives. I, I imagine it's being kind of like a kaleidoscope. You know, it's, it's never boring. It's always new. It, it's the same basic reality in ever new forms, again and again, inexhaustibly rich. So that, so that dynamic movement of mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit and love and freedom that, that's the ultimate reality of God, and the idea of perichoresis goes beyond being and concrete mode of being, you know, person, persona, to this dynamic movement that uh, is another way of getting at the unity of the one God. So uh, a fully developed doctrine of the Trinity needs these three elements, you know, the one indivisible being of God, the three concrete modes of existence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and their dynamic life together. 
perichoresis. You know, the, 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 it, it has that dynamism. It, it's like the dance of God, and how can we tell the dancer from the dance? Okay, here, here's a point I thought I was going to begin with, but uh, I'll, I'll end with it uh, and then take time for questions. I think developments in modern physics are very interesting in this regard because when, uh, <clears throat> when quantum mechanics was discovered, physicists were bumping up against phenomena that were very strange and that didn't fit within ordinary modes of thought and with the way in which we experience ordinary realities. We, we know about light being particles and waves. You know, that's, that's the common example. But, I mean, that doesn't make any sense in terms of ordinary experience. How can one reality be both particles, you know, discrete little entities like BBs, and a wave, you know, like a sine wave or wavy hair or something? They, they seem to be mutually exclusive, if particle, not wave, if wave, not particle. And yet, one and the same phenomenon of light shows up under these two different aspects, depending on what kind of experiment is run with it. So that there's no way of, of resolving this. And so physicists, uh, I, I have a quotation, which I'll just paraphrase, from a great physicist who taught at uh, Caltech named Richard Feynman, and basically says, we absolutely cannot explain this kind of phenomenon. He, the, the quotation I have is not really about light, it's about a similar phenomenon or, or a similarly strange phenomenon. Uh, in other experiments, they find that one and the same electron, so it can't be divided into parts. It's not half the electron is one place, half the electron is another. One and the same electron under certain circumstances occupies two mutually exclusive places at the same time. See, what's happening here? The, the world of Newtonian physics reaches its limit. It's fine within a certain range of reality, a certain ordinary range of reality, but once you get down to the micro level, it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't mean that Newton is wrong, it just means he reaches a limit. Or it looks as if uh, the Aristotle's law of non-contradiction has to be suspended also. I mean, in order to describe these very strange phenomena at the micro level. This idea of an electron being in two mutually exclusive places at the same time is called a superposition. You know, eventually it will resolve itself one way or the other, but it's not as if half the electron is in one place and half the electron is in another place. No, it's one and the same electron that's in this superposition. It's in two mutually exclusive places at the same time. And see, this is like the mysteries of theology it cannot be explained away. It can merely be described. So a, a simple way of putting it would be, it's too simple, but the strange modes of thought that they have had to adopt in quantum physics at the micro level are now analogous. They're not that, that dissimilar to the strange modes of thought we have to adopt as, as it were at the macro level when we're thinking about Christian theology. So a, a God who's one God, indivisibly one, and yet three at the same time, depending on how you look at it. And I, I will read this because it's on your sheet. If you look at the bottom 
there's some quotations from uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, and uh, in italics there, no sooner do I consider the one than I am lightened by the radiance of the three, no sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I bring any one of the Trinity before my mind, I think of him as a whole, and my vision is filled, and, the most, and most of the whole escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one in such a way as to attribute more greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch, and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. So the Holy Trinity is one undivided light, and yet we have to look at it from two different vantage points. From one vantage point, it's one and indivisible, and from another vantage point, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's no explaining this away. We can describe it, we can honor it, we can worship it, but we can't explain it. And that's exactly what Feynman says about quantum physics and what's going on at the micro level with all these very strange phenomena like particles and waves or superpositions or what physicists call entanglement. They can split a proton. It's one self-same proton, but it breaks into two. They can put one on an island in the ocean, another, another in the top of a mountain. And when they do something to the one on the top of the mountain, it immediately happens to the other on the other side of the earth on, on an island. Uh, it's called entanglement. So it's, it's one proton but it's occupying two spaces. It's like the electron in the superposition. There are all sorts of things like this that you run into at the micro level that seem to me similar to the mysteries that we have to deal with in Christian theology at the macro level. So Newton and Aristotle don't work at the micro level, but they don't work at the macro level either. We have to adopt new modes of thought to fit the strange realities, the strange new realities that we encounter through the self-revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So you know, it, it's not quite the same in physics as in theology because you know, when I say macro level, it sounds as if God is within the world, but, but since God is beyond the world, it's even more radical than what we find at the micro level. But, but it, it, in this very formal way, the, the patterns of thought that have to be adopted in quantum physics are in an interesting analogy to the modes of thought we've had to adopt uh, for centuries in Christian theology. So you, you see the mystery that this Nazianzus is dealing with there, one undivided light, and you, you look at one and it fills his vision, but you can't think about all three at once. You can't think the idea of one and three at the same time. It, it's it's uh, inconceivable. It, it, it's beyond the grasp of our minds. So finitude, human limitations, operate at the quantum level in much the same way as they operate at the theological, as it were, macro level.